tremendously excited about this evening. I want to share with you a new study that we're involved in, in Revelation chapter 1. I want you to mark, if you would, Genesis chapter 2. I'd like to reference that, if I could, with you. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in uh, John, or I'm sorry, Revelation uh, chapter 1 tonight. I want to look with you at verse 4 in particular. And again, we kind of give you just a little bit of a review where we've been this week. We've been looking at the book of Revelation and uh, really centering in on the prologue. And again, the prologue is, uh, is utilized by John to set boundaries uh, on the prophecy of Revelation itself. So before you ever get into the prophecy, he's setting boundaries and parameters for the book of Revelation. So we're going to stay within those boundaries and parameters. Now, when you leave the prologue, you with me? When you leave the prologue, you enter into the introduction of the book. We're going to use a marker board this evening, because it's really helpful, at least least it is for me, in visualizing what's taking place in this verse, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, At the very outset of the introduction, you have both the uh, writer, not the author, because we know the author is God, but we have the writer and the recipients of this letter uh, given. Of course, the writer, the one who's writing down the prophecy is John, and the recipients are the seven churches in the province of Asia, which are listed for us in chapters 2 and 3. And, of course, John is extending, as the writer, grace and peace from God. Now, this is a really unique passage of Scripture, uh, and, of course, it's it's, it's unique on a couple different levels. It's, it's, a, it's a passage of Scripture that defines God in terms of himself being Trinity. A triune God. That is, that is three persons in one God. See, we serve a one God in three persons. Uh, if, you, if you've been around the church long enough, I'm sure you've heard of the term Trinity. It's not a, uh, it's not, you're not going to find that term anywhere in the Bible. It was uh, uh, brought about by a man by the name of Tertullian in about 145 A.D., uh, or at least that's when he was born. And then after that, uh, he, he tried to explain uh, the one God in three persons type of language that we run into in the Bible. And he called that Trinity. Now, there's a couple different references to that. For instance, if you want to flip back really quickly, you can, or I can just read it to you. At the end of the book of Matthew, uh, you have this language used by Jesus. Uh, starting at verse 16, Then the eleven uh, disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not their names. Those are functional terms. Okay, Those are functional terms describing this one God in three persons, three persons acting as one God. They're not three persons acting independently, and sometimes they agree, and sometimes they don't agree. Uh, you know, we have relationships like that in our life, okay? Uh, it's one God, okay? They act as one. They think as one. They feel as one, okay? They're all on the same page. So it's one God in three persons. But these three persons have three different functions, So those are functional names. God's not the father in terms of like, I'm the father of my son, CJ. Those are functional terms. Now, that language is used, the Trinity language is used throughout both the New Testament and Old Testament. But Revelation is a little bit unique in that these persons, they're not, it's not separation language. When John introduces them, he doesn't give us separation language. In other words, kind of pulling them apart. But he gives us some insight into their functions. 
in the book of Revelation, grace and peace is extended to these seven churches. Okay? Grace and peace is extended to these seven churches. And it's extended by God, but God in three persons. Which means God the Father is extending grace and peace. God the Holy Spirit is extending grace and peace. And God the Son is extending holy, uh, 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 grace and peace. Now we know this, as you begin to move down through verses 4 and 5, you have different descriptions. And this is so neat. Again, this is unique among anywhere, and pretty much all scholars will will, uh, comment on this. This is unique in all of Scripture, where God the Father is described in his function different than that of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is described in function different than that of the Son. Let me read it for you. Beginning at verse 4, or at least in the midst of it. Grace and peace to you from, describing the Father, him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits, and some translations say the sevenfold spirit, before his throne. Is that the Lord? Yeah. <laughs> was that, did I hear noise? Did I hear? Yeah. Oh, no you're, no, you're, no, you're fine. No, you're fine. You're fine. I thought it was, I thought it was speakers or something. Oh, the radio, the ball game was coming through. I know you guys are really into football around here. Okay. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So you have this one God and three persons described in terms of their function in, uh, uh, really in-depthly. Now, what we're going to do in tonight's study is we are going to look at the Father and specifically his function in the extending of grace and peace to these seven churches. Now, don't look at me like that. It's not that complicated. <laughs> Okay, it's really, really interesting. So we're, tonight we're going to look at, and again, it's the Trinity, okay? Trinity, and there's three persons, one God, one God, one God, and three persons. We're going to look at the, the God, the person of the Godhead, the Father, and his function of extending grace and peace, okay? So the Father in his function of extending grace and peace. Ready for this? Now, first off, just give you a little bit of review in terms of grace and peace, which is a part of another study. found it interesting when you look at these terms, grace and peace. Uh, a lot of the terms that we have in our New Testament derive their understanding from a Hebrew mindset. Okay? In other words, um, we have... Jewish Christians, again, and we, we've talked about this before, you have secular, you have terms used in the secular language or secular culture, and then you bring those within the confines of the church, they take on different meanings. Well, when you take this term grace, it can mean several different things. In fact, it's even, um, it can mean several different things in, in, in our denomination in terms of Christianity. Uh, today, we hear grace used in several different ways, probably sometimes not helpful, um, when you take the word grace and you look at it from the perspective of the scripture, it's really interesting that the New Testament word grace gets its, gets its thrust or its drive from an Old Testament understanding. When you go back uh, into the Old Testament, and we know the Old Testament is translated, our Old Testament is translated from Hebrew, okay? And the New Testament is translated from Greek, now, about 30-some years, 32 years, 33 years before the birth of Jesus, they, tra- they had a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. So we, in essence, have an entire Greek Bible. Now, when they were translating the Old Testament Hebrew into Greek, they had to, of course, take Greek words and put them in place of Hebrew words. And when you find this word, grace, in the Old Testament 
lexicon, okay, the Old Testament Septuagint, the Greek, and you find out that word grace there, you're going you're to say, well, what word did that replace in Hebrew? The word it replaced in Hebrew was the word favor. Okay? Word favor. So the idea of grace from a Hebrew concept is favor. Okay? Is the idea of favor. Now, we know what favor is. Favor is where we get our word favorite or favoritism. And so if you are the recipient, think about this. If you are the recipient of grace, the idea, the biblical idea of grace, if you are a recipient of grace, it means you are the recipient of favoritism. See, someone's playing favoritism with you. You are someone's favorite. So God, see, when we re, we're the recipients of grace, God looks at us and he is ex, he's looking at us and saying, oh, you are my favorite. I'm, extent, I'm playing favoritism with you, which is a powerful idea. You go back into the Old Testament. This radically changed my understanding of grace. You go back into the Old Testament and you look at the people of Israel. God was consistently playing favorites with the people of Israel. They could do no wrong. I mean, they would go into a land and he would take all the land and give it to his people. See, he was playing favorites with them. And, of course, Israel, it wasn't really anything about Israel. It was all about an example uh, being set by Israel and how God views us. See, we are his favorites. Think about this. Of all of creation, of everything that God has ever created, you and I are his favorites. I found it interesting. In relationship to sin, you and I, of course, as human beings, fell into sin. We have a redemptive plan for us. See, when, we, when man fell into sin, God said, oh, that's my favorite. I can't just wipe my hands of that kind of thing. See, they're my favorite. And there's a redemptive plan for us. There was not a redemptive plan for the angels. I don't know if you ever thought about that. And, hey, I'm raising questions that I don't have the answers to. But, see, the idea of grace is not extended to angels. Grace is extended to us. So sit up a little straighter. Go, that's right, man. Wow. See, God has dumped grace upon you. See, you're his favorite. He looks at you and goes, oh, man. When he opens his wallet and goes, see, your picture's in there. Okay? He's showing you favoritism. That's the idea of grace. So grace is the idea that, hey, see, he loves me, and he's not going to let me get away. And, oh, he's, see, I'm, just, I'm the apple of his eye, and I'm the, the beat of his heart. Isn't that phenomenal? Now, because of the grace, because of the favor, because of the love that he has for us above all things, okay, above all creation, there is... There is the opportunity for us to have peace. And the idea of peace has to do with covenant language. In the Old Testament, if the people of Israel were in peace, it's because they were living in right relationship with the covenant. Okay? God's extending favor and he's, he's established this covenant with them. And if you lived in the, the boundaries of the covenant, you were having peace. So pretty much in the Old Testament, it was an outside peace. You always knew in Israel they weren't obeying the covenant because they were having turmoil and war. In fact, if you go back and look at the, the, uh, the literal translation of peace, it literally means absence of war and havoc of war. That's what it means. But you bring that from the Old Testament in the New Testament, and it's, it's less of an emphasis on outside peace. Uh, it's an emphasis on inside peace. And, of course, the covenant we have in the New Testament is based on Jesus. See, in Jesus, when I'm focused on him and he's meeting every need in my life and I'm living with a different perspective, there's a, there's a peace that's shed abroad in my heart. See, there's a peace that's going on inside of me. Um, again, this is a different message, but you have, you have this alluded to by Jesus. And, and, and in John chapters uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, uh, and really through the end of the book, 
he's constantly saying, my peace I leave you. And every time he appears to them, every time he comes to them during that 40-day period, he always says, peace be with you. See, out of all the things he could leave them, he's always, it's always peace. It's literally in the midst of a, of a world filled with turmoil, there's an abiding peace going on inside of us. It's a resting kind of idea. Okay? Now, this is, this is what is going on with these seven churches. And you look at that in light of who these seven churches are. Okay? The, the vast majority of these seven churches have problems. Uh, they're not, you know, some of them are living in rebellion. They're lukewarm. Uh, they've got massive issues with inside, uh, uh, within the, you know, the inner workings of the church and the people of the church. But still, grace and peace is extended to them. Now, what's really neat is when you take grace and peace as he is talking about it, and you look at it in each individual person of the Trinity. Because grace and peace is extended uniquely amongst all the members of the Trinity. Uh, when we get to the Holy Spirit, which will be a couple studies down the road, uh, grace, when it is given from the Holy Spirit, you take, and of course grace is the word charis, uh, or charis, however you pronounce that, and you, when it's transmitted from the Holy Spirit, you add M-A on it, charisma, which is our word gifts of the Spirit. And so grace and peace extended from the Holy Spirit is gifts. Okay? So the Holy Spirit has an extension. See, he, see, it's so phenomenal. It's like the God that sits around and says, oh, they're my favorite. And the other one says, oh, me too. Man, wow. I just, I want to extend grace and peace to them. And the Father says, this is how I'm going to do it. And the Son says, well, this is how I'm going to do it. And the Holy Spirit says, yes, this is how I'm going to do it. And it's one, see, they all think the same, three different functions. It's the same thing in the, in the plan of salvation. See, the plan of salvation, they said, oh, we've got to redeem man. We've got to redeem man. And it's neat to look back in the book of Genesis when when they're talking about... I should probably just read it to you. You don't have to turn here, but because we're going to look at some of this anyway. But when you look back in the book of Genesis at the fall of man, the language that God uses is plural language. And the Lord God said, the man has become like one of us. So you have the one God, okay, one God and three persons, that says, we've got to redeem man. And the Father says, hey, I know what role I'm going to play in that. Hey, I'm going to stay and I'm going to orchestrate and I'm going to... And the Holy Spirit says, wow, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down and just get right inside of them. And they're going to live and dwell in my presence and, and I'm going to pour myself through them. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to go down and die on a cross. And one God, three persons. So you have the function, the activity defined in terms of three specific figured you'd give me more trouble on that. Okay. What I want to look at you with this evening is the extension of grace and peace from the Father. Now, all scholars, and this is true, you can look this up and pretty much, I found it in five or six different commentaries. All scholars uh, admit and bring up the fact that Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, in relationship to the Father, has horrible grammar. Terrible grammar. You know what I mean by grammar. Uh, bad grammar can be kind of cute. Um, my son, I can't wait till he starts using bad grammar. Uh, I saw one of the little 16-month-old uh, today, and uh, I said, is that your cup? And she said, yes. And I look, my son's 19 months, and I'm like, are you watching this? I'm just, you know, 
say something. You know? <laughs> Let's speak, man. Use bad grammar. And, and one of the little kids yesterday, and, and it, you know, they start to talk, and they use bad grammar, and it's cute. And you're like, oh, that's so neat and wonderful. And it is cute and neat and wonderful at that age. But when you're like 35 and use bad grammar, okay, it's no longer cute and wonderful. Well, that's what scholars say, really. That's what scholars say about this verse. The, the grammar in Revelation 1-4, if you were a little Greek guy or a little Greek girl, the, you would notice right off the bat the grammar in Revelation 1-4 is absolutely wretched. And this brings up all kinds of controversy in the commentators. Because John, the guy who wrote the gospel according to John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, uses, you know, exceptional grammar. Some of the most flawless grammar in all of the New Testament. Okay, just excellent grammar. But you come in the book of Revelation, and you have several points in the book of Revelation that just has terrible grammar. Now, this brings a, a question. Hey, did John actually write the book of Revelation? Maybe someone else who didn't have as good as grammar wrote in his name. That's what some of the things that the scholars suggest. Uh, I side with, there's, and of course, scholars are divided on this. Some say he didn't write it. Others say he did write it. And I side with those who are right, and that's those who say <laughs> that he did write it. And I think, I do, I, I think John wrote this. I just think he took liberties. Think about this. I think he took liberties with the grammar, and he, ga- he gave bad grammar. Think about this. He, gave bad, he wrote in such a way that you wouldn't be able to miss what he's trying to say. So the bad grammar, it's so bad that it's like waving red flags in their culture, and he's saying, hey, I'm trying to tell you something, and I'm going to make it stand out. Okay? And this is what he's doing. So I want to look at a little bit with you about this bad grammar. Here's the grammar. Okay, grace and peace is extended from the Father, and he describes the Father as him who is, is that the first one? Who and who was and is to come and probably is coming would be more accurate. That's the grammar. Okay, as we translate it in English, that's the grammar. Um, this word is actually that's actually one word. Okay, this is one word, and this is one word. Okay, three three words in the original language: him who is, him who was, and him who is to come. This word here we have is what we call a participle. Okay, participle. This word here is a participle. And this word here is a verb, an indicative verb. Now, you know the difference between a participle and a verb, don't you? A verb does what? We know a noun tells us about a person, place, or thing. Hey, we remember that, okay? A noun talks about a person, place, or thing. A verb describes an... Action. So if you were going to use a verb in a sentence, you would say the boy hit the ball because you're describing the action of the boy. That's what you would use. That's how you use a verb. A participle, that's not the function of a, of a, of a participle. A participle is not, just, not used to describe the action of the boy. It's used to describe the content and what's going on behind the boy's action, the substance of the boy. So it's, it's, it's using the action to describe the boy and who he is, maybe, maybe even why he does the action. So instead of saying the boy hit the ball, you would describe, uh, use a participle and you would translate it, the boy who hits the ball. 
So it's not, you're not describing the action. I mean, did the boy hit the ball? Well, yeah, but see, you're not talking about the emphasis. It's not about the hitting the ball. The emphasis is on the boy who hits the ball. So the participle is really focused in on substance. Substance. Do better with Greek. Okay, the, the participle focuses on substance, and the verb focuses in on, on action. Okay? So you have a participle and a verb. Now, what is also going on in the grammar is you have, before each one of these uh, terms, you have what they call, and I'll mark it like this, you have what they call an article. Okay? You have a definite article. And what a definite article is doing in this sentence, when you have a definite article uh, in, in this kind of construction, what it does is it makes this statement what they call grammatically equivalent. What does that mean? It means the grammar is equal, grammatical equivalent. Okay, so you have a grammatical equivalence established, which also, again, this is horrible. And, of course, we're not Greeks, so we don't see it. But, see, this is horrible, horrible grammar. It would be like us saying that a noun and a verb are the same. It would be establishing, a, saying the grammar is equal. Hey, you can use a noun or a verb, and it's the same. It's a grammatical equivalence. Well, a noun and a verb is not the same because a noun describes a person, place, or thing, and a verb describes an action. Okay, so they're not grammatically equivalent. But the way that John writes, he establishes that this is a grammatically equivalent statement. And all scholars look at that and go, oh, man, what a... Go to school, man. <laughs> hey, that's not, correct. that's not correct language at all. I mean, it's horrible, horrible Greek. Why would he write that? Well, there's a reason for that. There are two different, there are two different words that John could have used in this sentence. Again, this is a term, this is a term, and this is the term. He who is, he who was, and he who is to come. Those are terms. He could have used two different Greek terms in this sentence uh, uh, to write what he's saying. Okay? Him who is, him who was, him who is to come. He could have used one, the Greek word, me, or he could have used the Greek word, genomai. And genomai is fun to say. Genomai. Okay? So he could have used me or genomai. And you would say, what's the difference? Well, I'm glad you asked. Amy this is a verb of being. It could be used to describe... Existence. Okay? Amy is a verb of being. Okay? It, it's, it, it could be used to describe something that exists. Okay? Genomai, it is a verb kind of being, but it's a verb of becoming. Okay? So it would describe something coming into existence. So amy is a verb of being, describing something that's existing. And genomai is a verb of becoming, which is something that's coming into, uh, something that comes into existence. Now, if John wanted to write with cor uh, correct grammar, he would have used the word genomai. Because uh, genomai has a past participle. Okay? And this is where it gets a little confusing, but not too, not too confusing. There is no past participle of amy. There's no past participle of amy, which is why he puts a verb there. 
There is a past participle of genomai. So if he would have used genomai, he could have, he could have used participle, participle, participle with the indefinite article, and everyone would have said, oh, great grammar, and they would have ran right by. But there is no past participle of, uh, of uh, amy, and so he has to put a verb here. So he does not use genomai, which would have been the correct grammar. He uses amy, which would have been the incorrect grammar. Now, <laughs> he would look at me and say, so what? <laughs> what in the world does that have to do with me? Oh, a ton. It has to do with a ton with you. Because, see, what he's doing is, is he's describing, he's giving content to who God is. And he is bound by his integrity of who God is, and which is why he uses the word amy instead of genomai. Because if he would have used genomai, he would have been stating that in the past, God became. Now, you and I know, was God ever created? No. God did not come into existence. In fact, there's a, there's a uh, and I would like you, if you'd be willing, to uh, turn back with me in the book of John... Chapter 1, the Gospel according to John, he, he uses these two verbs in contrast with each other. Okay? See, God, God is not genomai. See, God did not come into existence. God has always been. So if you were going to describe God existing, you would have to use amy, and you wouldn't be able to use genomai. He does this in the Gospel, uh, in his Gospel, within the first few verses. Let me walk you through this. Uh, John chapter 1. In the beginning, amy, and it's a form of amy, it's the word ain, okay? In the beginning, amy, the word. And the word was amy with God, and the word amy, God. He was amy with God in the beginning. Verse 4. In him, amy, life. And that life, amy, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There, genomai, a man who was sent from God. So he uses the first few verses to talk about amy, talk about God who is existing, who did not come into existence. And that's contrasted with John the Baptist, who was not amy, he was genomai. So John the Baptist came into existence. So there is a there is a huge there is a huge uh, 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 contrast that's being set up here, and what John is doing, and again, anyone anyone in their language, even scholars uh, who are looking back on Greek in our day, see this. In their day, everyone would have seen it that he should have used genomai, but because he was bound by his integrity of who God is, he does not use genomai. He uses a me, and he makes a grammatically, you know mess of the sentence, a grammatical mess of the sentence, and he uses amy here. Now, you would look at me and say, why does he go to all that? I mean, hey, it's important, and, and, and you know, but really, what's the significance of him using amy in this sentence? Well, he is painting a picture of a God, now hear this, he's painting a picture of a God who did not come into existence, but who has always been. Okay? He did not come into time. In fact, when you begin to look at the language here, it's evident that he talks about God in time language, time brackets. He talks about him as him who is and him who was and him who is to come. You can look, about, you can look at that in terms of present or past uh, or, or future. Okay? <laughs> so God has talked about in terms of, stay with me, God has talked about in terms of Time language. Okay? You getting this? Ah, oh, isn't this fun? 
He's talked about in terms of time language. God who is and who was and who is to come. And grace and peace from the Father, the first member of the Trinity, okay, the first person of the Trinity, grace and peace is given to man, is given to, these, given to these seven churches in a time kind of manner. And there's a huge contrast that's being set up. You have an eternal God who was not created, who did not come into existence, who is extending grace and peace to a group of, uh, of churches, human beings in those churches, who are created, who did come into existence. So you have an eternal God and a temporal people. You have an, you know, a God who was not created, who's extending grace and peace to a group of people who were created. You have a God who is not bound by time, him who is and him who was and him who is to come, who is extending grace and peace to people who are bound by time. Now, that's the study. When I first studied that, I stood back and I thought, okay, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, you go back, and I would like you to turn with me if you'd be willing. If you would go back in the book of Genesis, this, cha- this changed my perspective. This changed my perspective of the, of the series of events, the aging process, uh, time in my life, uh, and how God the Father extends grace and how he's ordained peace in my life through time in my life, through the unfolding of events in my life. This began back in the book of Genesis, and of course you know the story. In the first chapter, you have uh, the establishment of uh, you know, the creation, and he's going through the creation events. The church has uh, suggested that that's seven days, and of course I don't knock that. It's interesting, though, that day wasn't created till the fourth day, so I don't know how you deal with that. You come into chapter 2, and after he's created everything, uh, he creates Adam and Eve. Okay, he creates Adam and Eve. Here's how this begins, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung uh, uh, sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Verse 8, now the Lord God had planted a garden. This is significant. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here's here's a significant point. Man was not created an eternal being in and of themselves. They were able to partake of eternal life that was of all the neat things that were established in this tree. So they were able to live forever as long as they were able to eat from this tree of life. Okay? So they were not created as eternal beings in terms of the way God is eternal, but they were allowed to live forever by eating from this tree. That's the account. Now what happens is, as you move on, and of course he makes Eve because Adam's got problems... And you come down to chapter 3, and you have the fall of man. Now, get this. You have the fall of man that's recounted. What happens? It talks about this uh, snake. Uh, it's it's uh, crafty, and, and it's uh, you know, uh, more crafty than any of the wild animals. And uh, comes up, and, and 
Eve and this snake in this conversation about what God said, and she's deceived, and she takes the apple of the knowledge of the good, uh, or the apple. She takes the, the fruit of the tree of good and evil, okay, the knowledge of good and evil, and she eats it, and then she gives something to Adam, gives something to Adam, and they fall, okay? This is, this is the consequence of their sin, the consequence of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, get this, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God says, hey, he has eaten from Adam and Eve. They have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, coming like us, knowing evil and good. Hey, we cannot allow them. We cannot allow them to reach out and take of the tree in life and live forever. We cannot do that. In fact, it goes on to tell what God does, verse 23. So then God banished him and Eve from the garden, which he had been uh, taken... Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the side, east side of the Garden of Eden, a cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were banished. Now, the way that I had always perceived this, I don't know how you've perceived this, but the way I've always perceived this is this was the punishment for man. Hey, this is the consequence. Hey, I told you not to eat the thing. You did eat it. Now you're going to die. I'm banishing you from the tree of life. You're not going to be allowed to be eternal being. You're going to fall out. And he's, these are the consequences. You are going to die in sin. But when you get into the book of Revelation and you look at, get this, grace and peace is extended from God the Father in time language. He's an eternal God. He's interacting with a temporal people. And the way of his extending grace and peace is in this time kind of language. This is not a punishment. This is an act of grace. In other words, God looks at man and says, hey, I mean, he could have just let them be the way they are. He uh, uh, he could have let Adam and Eve uh, uh, be just like Satan and the rest of the angels. But because, you know, he plays favoritism with them, he reaches out and he creates something. This is really interesting. Time was the last thing he created up to this point. He reaches out and he creates something that was not created before. He reaches out and he creates time for Adam and Eve to repent. Because if he did not create time for them, they would have remained in the choice that they had made. They would have remained evil. But playing favorite, God said, hey, I'm not going to wipe my hands of you. He could have done that. He's saying, I'm not going to just, hey, I'm not going to just wipe, you know, hey, you're done and we'll start all over kind of thing. He creates time. He creates time for Adam and Eve and he gives them opportunity for repentance. Now, Genesis, you bring that into, and this is fantastic, you bring that into the book of Revelation. What you have is a span of time that has began at the book of Genesis and is extended all throughout And you finally come to the book of Revelation at the fulfillment of time. And God is bringing the redemption about that he's always, you know, had in mind that he's been setting from the very beginning. And when you look at these seven churches, you see that grace and peace is extended to them in in this time kind of language. For instance, uh, the church of Thyatira, which is the one, two, uh, three, fourth church. In the church of, uh, uh, of Thyatira, it's really cool. He is, of course, speaking to this church, and he's really aggressive. Okay? Jesus is really aggressive about a certain individual in the church. You read about her in verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and, uh, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. He says, I have given her time to repent. I've given her time to repent. What is that? See, it's grace. Hey, I've, I've worked with her. I've, I've reached in her life and I have given her time. I've reached in her life and I've put barricades in her life. In fact, that word time there is the Greek word chronos, which means a, a series or a succession of events. He says, I've given her time. I've given her this time. I've given her that time. Hey, I've brought this into her life. I've done this in her life. I've reached and I've interceded right here. I've moved in here and I've done this. Time and time as he moves through, I have given her time to repent, he says, but she is unwilling. So he's going to take this, this mode of grace to the next level. And he says, I'm going to throw her on a bed of suffering. Now this is, see, what would happen? I don't know, I don't know how you... Uh, you view your life, but I was kicked out of the Marine Corps in 1995 for drug use. I had some drug problems and uh, some chemical dependency in my life. And it was at that point when I was brought to a place where I believe I could finally hear him. Now, God didn't do that to me. That was the consequence of my own actions. And God brought a couple by who, who was a Christian couple who took me in their home and said, hey, no drinking, no drugs. You can smoke, but you do it outside. No girls, no bars. You have to go to church on Sunday. And I got saved. And there was, a, see, God had created, think about this. God had created time for me. And there are time and time and time and time and time again in the Marine Corps where he has reached into my life and he has opened up opportunity. He has extended I believe, without a doubt, he has spared me, giving me time to repent. Let me give you an example of this. Um, this is it's so vivid in my mind. It was, I, was, um, I just got back from Somalia. I was in Somalia for five months. I had gotten a, we had got a lot of money over there, and basically it was just going into my bank account. Because when you're overseas, you get endangerment pay, you get combat pay, all these extra pay. So it was all going to my bank account. So when I got back, I was a 20-year-old with a lot of money and nothing to do. And so we went to the bars, and that's all I ever did. Um, wasn't a Christian. And um, I developed uh, more chemical dependency, just a, a number of issues in my life. And we would go down to Mexico, because it was in Southern California. We'd go down to Tijuana about every weekend. And I went down there one particular weekend with a whole group, about five or six of us. Uh, of course, it was illegal to go down there. You weren't allowed to go down there, but we did. And... Um, I was the last to leave. I got separated from my groups. I was all by myself, uh, which is not a good thing. When you're walking back to the United States, there's a, you have to walk, of course, and there's normally crowds of people that are leaving, but this was 5 o'clock in the morning, so there wasn't too many people leaving. I was pretty much one of the last. And you have to go, and you walk up this round staircase or this block type of staircase that goes up about three or four levels, and you walk this bridge over the Great Divide there. You get over the bridge, there's a couple little shops, and they try to sell you stuff, and then you go to the border, check out, and you leave Tijuana, leave Mexico, and go in the United States. Well, I had gotten all the way to the top of that, that stair, and I was getting ready to go over the bridge, and I walked right out on top of the bridge, and these four Mexican guys just jumped me and beat the... I mean, I, I tried to get one of them, but, uh, you know, just four against one when you're you know, intoxicated just didn't work out too well. And so uh, I, uh, they beat me to a pulp, man. My face all swelled up. And uh, 
I was laying on the ground and they were kicking me and they stopped. And so I just kind of peered out and they were all kneeling down around me. And I had crawled up against the side of this bridge. And what was vivid in my mind is they're going to throw me off the bridge. They're going to throw me off the bridge. It's like a 40, 50 foot drop. And of course, there's nothing down there because that's the, the, the place that divides America from Mexico. And it just goes for miles. Um, you know, it's a cement. So I, I knew they were going to throw me off. And the, one of the guys looked at me and says, give me your money. I said, I don't have any money. That's why I'm walking. I'd have taken a cab. And I said, all I have is this. And I pulled out a pack of cigarettes I had. And had some, I, I, you know, I think I had a dollar in there or something. And I threw it over. And they all ran after it. And so I jumped up and I ran. And my, I would, I'd have let them beat me to death. I just didn't want them to throw me off the bridge. So I ran down the stairs. And I could hear them running behind me. And so I just ran back into Mexico. Because at that time I was in shape. And, and uh, I could run like the wind. And so I was flying. But I was so intoxicated that everything was bouncing. And it was pitch black and I couldn't see anything. And, and I kept looking behind me, but I couldn't see them. And I couldn't tell if they were running after me. And, and I was scared and hurt and bleeding. And so I was sprinting down into Mexico, just going down side street after side street. And I'd slow down. I could hear them. And so I'd just take off again. And, and uh, I remember running. And way, way up the road, it went down and started to bend back up. There was a, a big light, a big uh, street light. And under the street light was a, a van. And uh, in the van was this man he was waving his hand. And again, it's pitch black, and there's no way they could have seen. There's no way he could have seen me. I'm weaving everywhere, and, uh, and he's doing this. And so as I run, he's got his door open. And this is Sunday morning, about 5 a.m. And so I run, and I dive into this guy's van and slam the door. And he's a little Mexican guy, doesn't speak a lick of English, looks like he's some type of a carpenter, and he does not say a thing. He just looks at me and smiles, and he drives me to the border. And... Uh, I, I, uh, I said, I'd give you money, and he just smiles, and he opened the door, and I got out, and I walked up, you know, to the border, up to the officials who were going to check me out, and uh, hey, everybody's got stories, I have no, no way of proving that, but I believe to this day that I was an angel, I believe that, uh, I believe that God had called me, I believe that he loved me, I believe that I was his favorite, I believe he looked at me in my life and said, ah, oh, I gotta have that guy. I got a plan for his life. I'm not wiping my hands of him. And he, he reached into my life when my time had come and he had created time for me. He had reached in my life and hey, I, there was all kinds of events. I was rebelling. I was living in sin. And he reached in my life and he created time for me. He, and that was an act of grace for me. He reached, so I'm going to give this guy more time to repent. That's the woman in, in, in the church of Thyatira. He says, hey, you've got this prophetess named Jezebel, and I've given her time to repent. It's not this mean, nasty, oh, I've given her time, and now I'm going to let her have it. He says, I've given her time over and over and over and over again. What would happen? What would happen if you would take and let this change your perspective? What would happen if you looked at the events, the hardships, the problems, the marriage trouble, the trouble with your teens, the trouble with your job, all the pressure in your life? What would you do if you could take, what would happen if you could take that and look at that as maybe those are opportunities that God has put in your path, has blocked, he's absolutely not going to let you get away until he wants to deal with you on certain issues in your life. And he has used those, he has used those times in your life as opportunities to wake you up. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Uh, found it interesting as I begin to trace this throughout the New Testament. This kind of language is everywhere. In fact, Jesus is looking with his disciples. 
and uh, he's talking about how they're all going to lead him astray. They're all going to abandon him. And uh, Peter says, I'll never abandon you. You know the story. He says, I'll never abandon I'll die with you. And, of course, Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. But, okay, get this. But when you turn back, oh, I'm going to give you time, Peter. And, again, he looks at Peter and says, you're going to rebel. Oh, yeah, you're going you're to deny me three times. Say, I hate him. I never knew him. You're right in my face. In my greatest hour of need, you're going to rebel, and you're going to say no, and you're going to hate, and you're going you're to do everything to me that everyone else does. You're going to play the same role that the leaders of Israel have. You're going to do the same thing to me that Judas has done to me. But I'm giving you time. And when you turn back, oh. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> see, Judas, see, he gave Judas time. He gave Judas time. But Judas said, not interested. Not interested. I'm not interested in your time. And when you come into this, when you come into this passage, he, see, I don't know if I communicate this correctly or, or well enough. He is bending the grammar to such an extent. It's like raising red, red flags to you saying, hey, there's an enormous contrast with the language and the words that he uses and the way he puts those together. He is painting a picture of an eternal God who is extending grace to a temporal people. He is an eternal God that's not affected by time. Who is, who is reaching in and, and creating time for a group of people so that they can have time to respond. Because if God never gave us time, we could never, ever respond. Here's what I want to ask you. He's giving, he's giving you time. He's giving you time and time and time and time. And the only option you have is when God reaches in your life and gives you opportunity, gives you time to repent, you have two different responses. You can respond and say, I accept, or you can say, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. And all the events and all the pressure and all the struggles and all the, see, all the difficulties. See, what if those were just, see, what if he brought about those kinds of times in my life? If he put those in my life to deal with me. And those were not punishments. They were act of grace. But he was moving in on the scene. Hmm. Jesus, I want that in my life. I'm your favorite. And I know as somehow, and it's so difficult to look at it, but somehow as we're all looking at you this evening and we're all, we all come and we've all worshipped and listening and you look at us all as your favorite. You've given us time. You've moved in our life. You've played favoritism with us when we did not deserve it. You've given us opportunity to to respond. You've given us opportunity to repent. I choose to respond tonight, Lord. I want to take the opportunity. I want to take the time that you've given me. Bowed and eyes are closed. I don't. I don't know what that means to you. I don't. What it means to me is there's been times in my life when I know He's speaking to me about issues, about circumstances, about periods of time in my life. What if the time came tonight for you to just hey say hey I, I've heard you speaking to me. You've dealt with me for so long. 
you've created opportunity after opportunity after opportunity in my life. You've brought in, you've allowed these circumstances to come to be jarring and sure they're painful. Hey, sure they're difficult, but you've allowed those to come in my life for the very point of redeeming me, saving me from myself. I want, I want to give you the opportunity if, if he's speaking to you tonight and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's extended you time to repent. and He's, he's calling. Would you respond tonight? Would you say, hey, I, I, I want to give in to that. Hey, I, I want to I, I I respond to the time that he's offered me. If he's speaking to you tonight, I want to give you the opportunity to respond as we worship. Jesus, I just want to seek you. I thank you for the unmerited favor that you've shed upon my life. You've given me time that I did not deserve for the purpose of redeeming me. I respond this evening. Touch again.
like I wanted to be the one to close tonight.